turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Do not believe the bulletin. It's lying to you this morning. Uh, we're not in chapter 4. It was a typo on my fault, my uh, error. We're in chapter 9. We're going to start in verse uh, 6 of chapter 9. If you've been with us, we've been in chapter 8 for uh, a number of weeks, I believe like a month or so, four weeks. Uh, in chapter 8, because it, it is such a rich chapter and so much there, and uh, I'm sure there'll be other opportunities to go back into that and dig in deeper, but this morning we're going to move forward into our study of the book of Romans, and we are landing in in chapter 9, which uh, should be interesting, I think. Uh, Recently I was reading a book, it was a kind of a leadership type of book, and uh, one of the chapters uh, caught me off guard, and it was, he did it intentionally to kind of trip trip the reader up and to to make a point. This is how he started, he was going to read a statement and he basically was acting asking in effect who is this i'm going to read this and you think in your heads who you think this person who this is describing on a cold january day a 43 year old man was sworn in as chief executive of his country by his side stood his predecessor a famous general who 15 years earlier had commanded his nation's armed forces in a war that resulted in the defeat of germany The young leader was raised in the Roman Catholic faith. He spent the next five hours watching parades in his honor and stayed up celebrating until 3 o'clock in the morning. Who do you think he's describing there? If you're like me, you read that paragraph, it's like, that's easy. It's John F. Kennedy. That's who he's describing. You've got Eisenhower, who was president before him. He was a general, World War II, defeated Germany, Catholic, all that. You'd be wrong. Uh, He's describing Hitler. Adolf Hitler and his uh, installation, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, as a supreme or executive officer, if you will, of his country. And the point the author was making was that sometimes we just have the, we assume wrongly something that we're seeing. And we all have wrong assumptions that we make all the time. We have wrong assumptions about uh, maybe politically, uh, we make the wrong assumptions, or maybe about other people that we work with things we hear about on the news or uh, things we read about, situations we all have, sometimes we just have the wrong assumptions. We make the wrong conclusions about things. Uh, Sometimes we make the wrong assumptions about things in the Bible. Uh, We think things or assume things are scriptural, are in the Bible, but they're really not when you examine them, look kind of more closely at them. This morning we're going to look at one of those things uh, that maybe you're having the wrong assumptions about. Maybe you're assuming something to be true that the Bible teaches, but maybe it doesn't teach that. This morning we're going to dive into the topic of predestination or election or how God chooses people um, to love him and and to know him. Um, And I'm trusting that maybe it'll be some things that, that you're seeing here that's like, that's not what I thought it meant. Or maybe it'll be some things... Regardless, let's read the passage first, and you'll see a little bit why we're having to talk about this. Uh, Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6, if you would stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter six, 9, starting in verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. 
In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by faith, by, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has, mer- God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed formed it, What did you make me like? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump a clay of some clay of clay, some pottery for special purpose, and some for common use? This is God's word, it's absolutely true and given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father God, uh, this passage is, is not simple. It is um, is heavy. It has some some weighty uh, implications. Um, we pray that you would uh, teach, that you would instruct, that you would uh, give us ears to hear, and even encourage us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. When uh, Bible uh, scholars or Bible teachers come to Romans chapter 9, they begin to to scratch their head a little bit, because they begin to ask themselves, how does chapter 9, and for that matter, how does chapter 10 and 11 fit into the book of Romans? You've been tracking with us, we've looked at the first eight chapters, and that's clear to see, it's a concise uh, message, so to speak, it seems to, to move and flow together, those first eight chapters, it's about the righteousness of God. That's revealed. It's about the gospel and our need for the gospel and what God does to save us. If you were to skip ahead past 9, past 10, past 11 and get to chapter 12, you would see, well, it's that same thing. It's just, it's the righteousness of God or it's the gospel of grace simply applied to the believer's life. Paul's making all these implications. If the gospel is true, chapter 1 through 8 are true, this is what it means for you to live in light of that truth. And that's easy to see. And so folks come to 9, 10, and 11, they go, what is Paul doing? He's on this sidetrack, talking about election and, and the Jews and the hardening of hearts and all this kind of stuff. Where is Paul going with this? How does it fit in with the rest of this book? Well, there's probably a, a couple of answers, but let me suggest this uh, to you. At Romans 8, verse 30, Paul talks about predestination and being justified and being called and being glorified talks about the certainty of God's and intentionality of of God working in people's lives there directly. 
And as the reader is, is seeing that and processing that, what Paul is saying, the implications of that, particularly if you're, if you're Jewish, you're thinking, okay, if God has called out his people, the Jewish people, what do these things mean for him? What do, they, what do the promises of Christ and, and God's righteousness mean for the Jews? We didn't read these first five verses, but it's, it's clear that what's being asked is, if God is, is there and is real and he's done all these things, what about, why aren't the Jews responding to the gospel? Why are they believing the gospel for themselves? And so you can hear Paul, these kind of questions in the background, and Paul saying, okay, we're going to address this. We're going to talk about this. Uh, because the Jews had at their disposals, they had the, the covenants, they had the law, they had God uh, pulling them out as his special people, if you will. All these promises, all this special attention, and yet the Messiah comes on the scene, walks among them, talks to them, teaches among them, and there's just this rejection of him. They, they don't buy into what he's saying. They don't buy into him as the Messiah. And Paul is picking up this discussion, if you will, this question, if you will, and, and addressing it and, and working through what it really means. When I was um, graduating from seminary, I got a handful of gifts and a lot of cards. And um, there was one gift that, that stuck out to me. It was, a, it was a quote, and it was written in cursive. It was just one sentence, very short, very concise, written in cursive on this nice paper and was framed in this nice little frame, and it can sit on your desk there. And the quote said this. It said, it's your duty to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you like it to teach. And I thought, oh, that's really great. And I was like, of course I'm going to teach the Bible. But then at the same time, in the back of my head, knowing what's in the scripture, there will be moments when, I don't know if I really want to talk about this. Uh, I don't know if I really want to bring this up because it's um, polarizing, because it's confusing, because it, it's met with some kind of pushback or maybe some uh, controversy, I guess you, you might say. Uh, this is one of those passages that it feels to me that the, uh, the topic of God's sovereignty and the extent of God's sovereignty in an individual's lives, whether it's talked about as described as predestination, elect, or, or election, or being chosen by God, that God's sovereignty in, that, in the, um, how big that is and how expansive that is, sometimes is met with some frustration, I guess, um, and some pushback. And so what I want to do with this passage is ask ourselves, what do we learn about God's sovereign grace from Romans chapter 9, 6 through what does this passage teach us about God's sovereign grace, and what are some of the implications for us? And so three, three points I want to make. I want to talk about so, God's sovereign grace argued, how Paul uses, how he argues the case and, and makes, makes a case for it. I want to talk about God's sovereign grace defended, how Paul pushes back on some people's questions about it, particularly beginning in verse 14. And then sovereign grace applied. Uh, what does it mean for us? What are some practical um, implications for us? So sovereign grace argued, how Paul argues for it. Again, the question is, why aren't the Jews embracing Christ as the Messiah? They've had all this background and, and special understanding of him, these rich promises and the, and the scriptures and all that. Why aren't they embracing him as a majority? And to to make sure this question just doesn't, it's not something academic for us, 
kind of what's underlying this question and the principle that's, that it's revealing is, is answering the question, why do some people love God and others don't? Why is it that some people love God and others don't? And how does this passage help us understand that? Uh, verse 6, Paul immediate, his immediate response is, it's not because God's word has failed. 1 through 5, he's talked about the Jews and all the privilege that, that they've had. Why are they rejecting him? And Paul says, it's not because God's word has failed. It's not because of God's purposes has failed. And then he goes on to give his answer. And he basically, he uses initially the argument of two Old Testament uh, people. He talks about Abraham and Isaac, and then uh, Jacob and Esau, to, to argue for God's sovereignty and understanding of that. And so let's look at those two individuals, or two groups of people, two pairs. Uh, first, Abraham and Isaac. To set the stage for this, Paul makes this distinction off the bat. At the end of verse 6, he says, Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And so Paul is beginning to define his terms. Not all who are descended from Abraham, in other words, are Abraham's true offspring. And in other words, there is ethnic Israel, there's all Israel, you might say, and then there is spiritual Israel, or true Israel. And it makes he makes more sense. He pounds this out a little bit more. Some of you are thinking, well, God did, didn't God choose Israel to be his people? Well, yes. But just because he chose Israel to be his special nation, so to speak, that we see in the Old Testament, does not mean that each individual that's part of Israel is called to, is going to automatically know God and know eternal life and know the kingdom of God. He's making this distinction. Uh, and he's already made this distinction. He talked about this in, in Romans 2.28. We looked, we saw it. I don't know if we camped out on it for a while. But he says earlier, a person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely an outward and physical. He's saying that you can go through the, the motions of things and be identified with this group, but it doesn't mean all the, the reality of those promises and truth are necessarily are true for that individual. Not all who are Israel are Israel. And then he goes on to make this argument with Abraham, brings Abraham to prove his point, to make this with this distinction. He says in verse 7, Nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Which is to say that from the beginning, God was making choices. He was making distinctions. If you remember from your, all the years that you put in your Sunday school classes, you remember that Abraham had more than one son. He had Ishmael. He had Ishmael through uh, a relationship, you, you might say, through one of his servants. And Ishmael was born. And uh, Paul is pointing out here, just because Ishmael belongs to Abraham doesn't mean that he's part of uh, the nation of Israel or it's one of those that uh, gets the promises of God. He may be descendant of Abraham, but he's not part of the true offspring of Abraham, which is why he says in verse 8, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So here Paul is making this distinction between all Israel and spiritual Israel. Okay? Put that one side in your head. Now he gives a second uh, example. He talks about Jacob and Esau to begin to, to bring this point 
to home. Verse 10, Rebekah, who is Isaac's uh, wife, Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Okay? Jacob and Esau are descendants of Abraham. Okay? Isaac is a descendant of Abra- is Abraham's son, and then he had Jacob and Esau. And then you get to verse 11, which really gets uncomfortable and gets to, to the meat uh, of the issue, you might say. Verse 11, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, or Rebecca was told, the other, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau now, this is the, the meat of it, and there's four things I wanted to, to pull out very uh, quickly and very briefly. The first one is this. This passage tells us that God chooses to bless Jacob, and Esau was, how he blesses Jacob and not Esau was made before they were born, that before they uh, were, were seen by their parents. The second thing is the choice that God made was not based on what he knew about was made based not based upon how they would turn out and what choices they would make, uh, the type of person they would grow into being. It was made before that, before they, they left the womb, uh, so to speak. And it's at this point that some will chime in, well, what about, well, he chose Jacob because God was foreseeing. He foresaw, foresaw who, who Jacob would be and the choices he would make and the type of person he would be. That's why he chose him. That's why he went after Jacob in a different way than he went after Esau. Well, okay, I understand what you're saying, but then you've got to deal with verse 12, which says, not by works, but by him who calls. In other words, God's uh, favor towards Jacob was not based upon anything, any kind of work that Jacob did. It didn't matter what his, the choices that he made in the future and what God may have, may, may or may not have foreseen in him. It wasn't that that's beside the point. God is, is making a special relationship, if you will, with Jacob before they did anything. The third thing, the difference between Jacob on, and Esau is the only difference between them is God's purpose of election, which means that God pulled out or did something or it was intentional towards Jacob, and that's the only the difference between the two. Finally, the, the last thing, and probably the most hairiest thing there, is it says that Paul says that Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Which is a quote from Malachi, which is one of the, the minor prophets uh, there. Now, if that sounds harsh, that was, God, he, he hated Esau. Love Jacob, but hated Esau. It sounds so harsh. It's, it's not hate in the sense of that he had an axe to grind with this person or he wanted to be malicious towards that person or he was hostile or a loathing of that person. It's a hate, it's a love and a hate in the sense of gave priority to, or in comparison to, he loved Jacob. Uh, think about it like this. Jesus uses the same language in the New Testament. When he's talking to the disciples and he's talking to people and he's teaching on discipleship and what it means to follow him, saying to the crowds, if you want to follow me, this is what it looks like. This is what you can expect, or this is what I ask of you. In Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even in their own lives, such a person cannot be my disciple. 
Now, certainly Jesus is not saying, if you want to follow me, then you've got to be hostile to your spouse. You've got to be hostile to your children and to your friends and family. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, we're supposed to honor our parents. We uh, love and adore our spouse. That's not the hate he's talking about. What he's saying is, I have to be that priority love. That in comparison to every other relationship of your life, uh, I am the one that you treasure the most. That there's, compared to me, it, it's almost like you hate everything else. You love me that much. Now, we look at this, and let's think about what we've learned so far. And then we'll, before we get into some of the arguments against this, uh, maybe. The question is, why aren't the Jews receiving Christ, embracing him as Messiah? Which the question for us is, why do some people love God and other people do not? We see uh, two things. The first thing is that the promises God gave in the Old Testament were never automatically given just because you were a descendant of Abraham. Uh, the promises of God were not automatically true for you just because of your ethnic connection to uh, Israel. There's a difference between all Israel and spiritual Israel or true Israel. That's one of the arguments that Paul is making for why it may look like God's word is failing. The second thing is that spiritual faith that is able to embrace the promises of God is something that God initiates. It's something that God gives us, that he reveals to us so that we can embrace him and know him freely. Now here's maybe some of the pushback that you're thinking about God's sovereign grace as it relates to um, him uh, identifying with some people and not with others. And you see it in the text that Paul brings up. He talks about Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And it's like Paul can hear the, the pushback that people are going to say immediately because what does he say in verse 14? What then shall we say is God unjust? Which is to say, are, we, are you to think that God is, is God being unfair? Is this not right of him? It's that he can't choose certain people and not choose other people. That's not right. That's not fair. And, of course, it's a rhetorical question. Of course God is just. Of course God is fair. And then he goes on, the rest of it, in, in the end of verse 14, it says, not at all. God is just. God is righteous. And then in verse 15, he makes this argument. He says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom this is Paul saying that God has absolute sovereignty. Absolute sovereignty over grace and over mercy. He's the one that controls that and dispenses that. Now, the Bible talks about God's sovereignty maybe in, in, in three ways. Two of those ways we're, most of us are probably okay with, and there's not really a lot of discord over that, but that third one really gets us. Uh, God is sovereign in the sense that he's sovereign over the universe. He controls everything. He created it, uh, and so he controls it. And we don't have a problem with that. He made it. He controls our world, this planet Earth. He controls the whole universe, the stars, everything that we cannot see. He is in sovereign control over that. The second, because God created all things, he's sovereign over what he can command his people. He's sovereign over the law. He's the one that can say to us, this is right and this is wrong. He's sovereign over what we are obligated to him. He's sovereign over how we're supposed to behave and live our lives because he created us. He's the maker. He's the one that gets to call the shots in our lives. But God is also sovereign as it relates to the exercise of his 
grace, and that's what verse 15 is trying to point out to us. He is sovereign over his grace that he dispenses to his people, who he wants to show mercy to and who he does not want to show mercy to. Now let me pause here. I get that this is hard. This is hard to understand. This has implications as you think about other people in your life and God working in other people's lives. So here's maybe some help explain some of it a a little bit uh, more. A couple illustrations and a couple ideas as to why God is not acting unfairly or unjustly. Uh, The first is this. If you had a, let's say you have a doctor and uh, he's got his practice and there are five patients waiting in his um, waiting room and he only sees two of those patients. The other three he does not uh, see at all. Is it unjust of him to do that? Well, yes, it's unjust for him to do that because he owes care to them. It's not right that he should do something like that because those patients are are owed or he's obligated to care for those patients as well, not just to choose two and disregard the other three, but he's obligated to care for them. But what if the the President of the United States exercises his uh, ability to pardon uh, prisoners? He gets up and he says, I want to pardon these 20 individuals. Is he obligated to pardon everybody in the prison system? You would say no. He's not obligated to do that because those prisoners are not owed um, to be released uh, because of their guilt, because of things that they have committed. Now go back to Jacob and Esau. What Jacob got was what? He got mercy or he got grace. What did Esau get? He got justice. Esau was not owed uh, grace. He was not owed mercy. It wasn't his right to have that because of his guilt. Jacob got grace. He got something he did not deserve. It wasn't, um, that's why it was fair of God. That's why we can't say that God is being unfair in dispensing grace. Grace is not something we deserve, but it's something that we are given. Maybe another illustration. Uh, I think maybe you've heard this before. I think I've shared this one before. It comes from uh, D. James Kennedy, the late D. James Kennedy. And he says this scenario. Imagine I have uh, five friends, and they want to rob a bank. Okay, This is purely hypothetical. I don't have five friends that want to rob a bank. But I have five friends that rob a bank, and I hear about this, and I go to where they're at, and I try to talk to them. I say, you cannot do this. It's going to be ugly. It's going to end bad. Uh, you're not going to get away with it. You're going to get caught. Somebody's going to get killed. It's going to be really bad. And my five friends are like, you don't understand my life, and I've got to do this, otherwise I'm not going to survive. And so they proceed to leave the room, and they're going to go rob this bank. But I grab one of them, I wrestle them to the ground, I knock them out, and the other four go, and they rob the bank. And, of course, the worst happens um, because it's my story. Uh, They get caught. Uh, One of the security officers dies in the process. They're arrested, and they're sentenced to... Uh, to jail, and some of them are going uh, on death row. Now, here's my question. Can, the, end of, can the, the fifth person, the one that I knocked out and wrestled to the ground that didn't go rob the bank, can that person go around and say, because my heart is so good, uh, that's why I'm a free person today. That's why I'm not implicated in what they did. In other words, are they free uh, because of the type of person they are? No, they're free because I restrained them and knocked them out and kept them from doing that. 
And so for us as individuals who are saved and know that we're saved, the only person that we can thank and give praise to is Christ and what he's done for us. We can't look inward and say, you know, I'm a believer because I'm just such a humble person. Uh, I'm a believer because I had the eyes to see and I could I could humble myself enough to know that Christ is true and he's right and I had the, the enough faith to believe these things. Now, the only person that we can thank and give praise to is Christ himself and what he has done for us. The other response that some people have to this idea that God is being unfair and choosing some people and not choosing others is it seems like God is being arbitrary. That he's just being random in who he selects. There's no rhyme or reason why he picks this person and doesn't pick that person. But nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in this passage, do we see God painted as up in heaven saying, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, I'm going to pick this one over that one. That's, that's not how God's sovereignty is portrayed. We know that he chooses for a reason. We don't know what that reason is, but it doesn't, just because we don't know what that reason is, doesn't mean that he doesn't have reasoning. We know that he is wise, that he is good, that he is just. We know all these things about him. But we do know he, cho- he does not choose us based upon what we do or do not do. His choice of us is not hinging on how much humility we're able to exercise or the choices that we make or our desires for God or any of those things. It's not based upon those. It's unconditional. It wouldn't be grace if it was based upon anything that we did. It wouldn't be a gift if it was based upon anything that we did. He loves us unconditionally despite our sin, despite our brokenness. Now, here's the thing. There's more we could say about God's sovereignty. There's more questions uh, about it. Let me close with just two practical points of application uh, to think about God's sovereignty in our lives. I get that it is a mystery. I get that it is something difficult to to really grasp. Uh, I mean, how do you explain God's absolute sovereignty and man's human responsibility? Okay, I I cannot put those things together for you, but I can declare to you that that the Bible fully embraces God's sovereignty and man's responsibility uh, to, to obey his law. So a couple, two points of application uh, is this. And they're, they're brief. Uh, first one is this. God's sovereign grace means you cannot ultimately mess up your life. God's sovereign grace means that you cannot ultimate, ultimately mess up your life. Even your troubles, even your failures, God will use in your life as you love him, as you walk with him, We have pounded away at Romans 8.28, God working all things for the good to those who love him. There's other promises in the Bible that reflect that same thing. The psalmist in Psalm 52, excuse me, 57 says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. That you can know for sure that you are not going to mess up your life with the choices that you make today. As you're walking with him, as you're loving him, as you're pursuing him, that those decisions you make are not going to upset and get you off track where you're not knowing his sovereign purpose and plan for your life. And so for you, my application for you is to delight in God's sovereignty, to delight in God's purpose for your life. Know that he has a design for your life, that he is not random or arbitrary in his love for you, but he has sought you out. 
that he has put his special love, come, rest in that, delight in that, value that. Let that be your security. Let that be your confidence in life, particularly when you meet the, when you meet the unexpected, when you meet the uncertain, when you meet the troubles that are certainly to happen to us. The second is this. God's sovereign grace means we can delight in his unconditional love for us. God's sovereign grace means that you can delight in his unconditional love for you. Not just his love for you, but his unconditional love for you. And the reason it's important to see that it's unconditional is this. If you believe on some level in your faith that the reason God loves me is because of something I bring to the table. He loves me because of my humility or loves me because... I read the Bible all the time, or he loves me because I go to church. He loves me because I do this, this, or that. If you put any kind of condition on God's love for you, what's going to happen is there's going to be those moments that you're scared. What if I lose that? What if I lose that humility? What if I lose my consistency at church? What if I lose my um, prayer life? What if I lose this, this, or that? Then God's not going to love me anymore. The truth and reality is God loves you because he loves you loves you and it extends to you grace and mercy and the personal work of Christ the gospel, not because of something you bring to the table, but because he loves you. Do you know the freedom that is there? How you can relax and say, it's not about me, but he loves me. He accepts me for who I am. He delights in me. You can take refuge in him. You can take comfort in him. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to pretend that he knows your errors. He knows your he says, here's Christ. Here's my grace. Here's my sufficiency. Here's my mercy. Here's my righteousness. We stand before him not because of anything that's special in us. We stand before him not condemned, fully loved, fully adopted, fully his children, fully his heirs because of what Christ has done for us. Are you able to delight in God's sovereign, unconditional love for you? To rest in Father God, you uh, extend to us your sovereignty. Your word is clear that you are a sovereign God that is in control, that you are not limited in any shape or form. And you call us to yourself. You love us freely. You love us perfectly. You love us unconditionally in Christ. pray that you would give us eyes to see and understand the truth and reality of who you are. To make sense of this work that you do, to make sense of how you bring people to yourselves, to yourself. We may not have all the answers. We may not be able to fit it all together. At the end of the day, it may be a mystery as to why this or that happens. But we can you, we can trust you, we can find ourselves fully committed to you, resting in your greatness and glory in our lives. Would you give us faith and would you give us understanding? Would you give us more of your grace and more of your gospel? We ask in Christ's name.